As we begin our time in God's Word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning grateful for the blessings that we enjoy in worship, for praying for one another, for hearing testimonies of your goodness and your grace, for singing songs uh, of praise to you and uh, to, from reading from your Word. Lord, in all of those ways, we are grateful for how you build us up. And Lord, as we come to this time of study in your word, as we consider uh, the death, burial and resurrection of Christ uh, and what that means for us, Lord, that you would um, help us to understand that you would give us open ears and eyes that we might hear and see the truth of your gospel. Uh, if there's anyone here who has not trusted in Christ, I pray that the truth of the death of Christ would uh, draw them to you and that they might repent and believe. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, and we'll get there eventually, but we're uh, going to take a little bit of time to consider uh, what the cross of Christ means. And as we've worked through the Apostles' Creed, we are now to the works of Jesus and what Jesus has done through His life and His death and His resurrection. And we are on the phrase of crucified, dead, and buried. And so that all kind of goes together to consider the death of Christ, the crucifixion, uh, his death, and what that means. And so as we begin today, let's do as we've done so far in this study and let's recite the Apostles' Creed together. You have it in the middle of your bulletin there, and if you would like to read along and recite that with me, I would invite you to do that now. So let's do that. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I hadn't decided yet if I should bring my gold stars yet and start giving them out for those who have memorized it yet. But uh, we'll, we might do that at some point, you know, do the uh, like we did in Bible drill all those years ago where you, if you remembered something, you got a gold star. Would anybody be motivated by that? I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe Harmony. Harmony saying no, she wouldn't be motivated. Yeah, anyway, uh, maybe we're starting to commit it to memory if you haven't already, but that's uh, kind of the heart of why we're reading that every Sunday. But we come today to uh, this clause, crucified, dead, and buried. And we call this, or the church in general calls this, the passion of Christ, the passion of the Christ. And in fact, there's been a movie made about the passion of the Christ, which focuses on the death of Jesus, the cruel reality of his painful death at the hands of the Roman and Jewish authorities by the worst torture device that the Romans had ever devised in their arsenal. Now, anyone who considers the, the cruelty of the cross of Jesus Christ should be amazed 
at how this ancient method of torture could become a symbol of grace and beauty. In fact, crosses are so ubiquitous, they're so familiar in our society that it is lost on us just how humiliating and embarrassing and cruel a cross actually was. In fact, if you notice now, crosses are everywhere. They're on the side of the road. They're in graveyards. They're on our jewelry that we wear. And it's so strange, if you were to go to ancient Rome or to ancient Judea in the time of Jesus, and you were to tell them, I'm from the future, and one day this, this torture device is going to be worn by women throughout the world as a symbol of beauty and grace, they would have laughed at you because the cross was reserved for criminals. It was reserved for slaves. It was reserved for the worst of people, the people that the government despised, the people that society despised. It was for the worst of the worst to suffer this cruel way of torture and death. And yet, it is a testimony to the truthfulness and the beauty of the gospel that there is one man and only one man who has ever lived who could take this torture device and turn it into something that is beautiful. And that man is Jesus Christ. There is no jewelry for Muhammad. There is no jewelry for any other person who has died. There is no jewelry that symbolizes the torture of a man other than Jesus Christ. And at the time of the Apostles' Creed, when the Apostles' Creed was first developed, it's important for us to recognize that crosses were still used as a means of execution. In the second century, when this ancient creed was developed, it was still the crosses were still used not as a thing of beauty but as a thing of torture so there are some very important reasons that the apostles creed states clearly that Jesus was crucified that he died and that he was buried and this morning i want to consider two points from this statement i want to consider that the cross of christ is evidence And the cross of Christ is essential. The cross of Christ is evidence and the cross of Christ is essential. First, consider the fact that the cross of Christ is evidence of the truthfulness of the gospel message. Now, I've made this point recently and I'll continue to make this point throughout this sermon series that Christianity is unlike any other religion In a very important sense, Christianity, unlike other religions in the world, is rooted in historical truth claims. We claim that our Lord Jesus lived in a specific time and place under the rule of real people like Pontius Pilate, that he actually healed people, that he actually had disciples who could testify to him, that he actually died on a cross and was buried in Joseph's grave, and he rose again from the dead on the third day. Now, this is a very dangerous place for a religion to be. You see, as long as a religion makes moral claims, then it can't be disproven. As long as a religion speaks about metaphysics and spirituality, it can't be debunked. 
But when a religion says this thing actually happened in space and time and it means something, not only does it mean something, but it proves something, then and only then does that religion run the real risk of being disproven. You see, you need to understand that all of Christianity... The rituals like communion that we're about to observe, the church buildings and budgets that we're so concerned with, the traditions, all of it hangs on this single thread. On one thread does the whole of Christianity hang. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. All of it hangs on that. And so Satan knows this. And throughout the history of the church, he has focused much of his energy on cutting that one thread. At the end of the first century, a group of false teachers arose within the church who were influenced by Greek philosophy known as Neoplatonism. We talked a little bit about that last week. These, this group was known as the Gnostics, and they believed in secret knowledge that you could discover by uh, meditation, by being truly enlightened, by seeking the deep truths of secret things in Scripture. In fact, the name Gnostic means to know. That's what their name means. Uh, They taught that the material world was evil, created by forces other than God, and that our souls are effectively trapped in our material bodies, in this material world. So in an effort to destroy the true church, they infiltrated the ranks of pastors and they began to uh, to spread this false doctrine. They even produced what are now known as the Gnostic Gospels. You may have heard of the Gnostic Gospels, whether it be the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas uh, or several other Gospels that are out there. And these Gospels, though they were written long after the four Gospels of the New Testament, and they tell a very different story. For whatever reason, every year they become popular again, and the History Channel runs a special on them, or, or some uh, PBS will talk about them, and, and they cause a great deal of controversy. Now, there are two lies about the life uh, and death of Jesus that the Gnostics spread, and the Apostles' Creed doesn't mince words about what uh, we should believe, and it does that because of these lies that the Gnostics spread. First, because the Gnostics believed that the material world is evil, they rejected the possibility that Jesus could be born in the flesh and that he could suffer human pains and that he could be killed on a Roman cross by the Romans and the Jews. So they taught that either Jesus just simply appeared to die on the cross or that he wasn't even there at all that someone else like Judas died in his place. Now, in modern times, there are similar efforts by the atheist to discredit the life and death of Jesus. Some atheists, for example, deny that Jesus even existed. These atheists will even go so far as to suggest that the 120 followers of Jesus were somehow under a mass delusion. They even propose that they all tripped on mushrooms, and simply hallucinated the existence of Jesus. Now these lies, I think I've heard a few chuckles in that, uh, these lies are ludicrous. And they are ludicrous for two reasons. 
For one, outside sources, even hostile sources, affirm the life of Jesus. One of the best examples of this is the Jews themselves. If you go back and you look at ancient writings of the Jews from Jesus' day, they don't say, hey guys, all these disciples of Jesus, they're tripping on acid, man. You know, they don't, say, they don't blame the, the uh, beliefs of the Christians on a, a, a far-out trip. They instead acknowledge that Jesus was a sorcerer and deceiver, which proves that Jesus was a real human and that he worked miracles. But we have a better reason than that to believe the story of Jesus. We have the eyewitness testimony from his own disciples. In 1 John, the Apostle John begins his letter to the church by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. So John, combating the Gnostics of his day, said, look, guys, I I touched Jesus. I hugged him. I sat next to him. I listened to him preach. I saw him. I experienced his life. And I can tell you that he was a real human who did the things that we say he did, and he died the death that we say he died. Jesus was not a spirit that the apostles followed or a hallucination that they tripped out on. He is the real flesh and blood Son of God. And the real Son of God died on the cross and was buried in the tomb. Second, later Gnostics popularized the belief that Jesus didn't die on the cross, but that he escaped by some conspiracy of the apostles, and went on to have a family. Now, this view has gained popularity recently with Dan Brown's book and then the subsequent movie called The Da Vinci Code. Now, modern atheists have jumped on this bandwagon of conspiracy to suggest that Jesus didn't die on the cross, but rather he swooned or he fainted and recovered in a tomb And then, after recovering three days later, he rolled a 2,000-pound stone away and met up with his disciples and propagated the belief that he had risen from the dead. Now, in either form, this lie is just ridiculous. For one, the physical abuse that Jesus suffered prior to and on the cross would have killed anyone. Jesus received 39 lashings from a cat of nine tails that would have ripped his skin and his muscle off of his back. The cat of nine tails had glass and pottery tied into its ends for the express intention of ripping away flesh and uh, skin and destroying a person. He would have likely bled to death just from that beating. But then he was nailed to a cross which was designed to suffocate its victims to death because Jesus hung from his arms that were nailed to the cross. If you, ho- if you hang from your arms for any length of time, you'll realize that you have no capacity to breathe when you have your arms above your head like this because your diaphragm can't expand. 
And so in order to breathe, Jesus would have had to have pushed up on the nail that was driven through his feet so that he could gain uh, traction in his lungs to breathe. And you can only do that after having been beaten half to death or mostly to death. You can only do that for so long until all you have the energy to do is just hang there and barely bring in breath until you suffocate and die. So the Roman soldier that comes around to make sure that all the victims are dead recognizes this. And now a Roman soldier is trained in the art of killing. So he knows what he's looking at when he sees a dead body. And he recognizes that there's no need to break Jesus' legs, which would have guaranteed that he would have suffocated to death because he was already dead. But to ensure it, he drives a spear through the heart of Jesus, and water and blood pour out, which is consistent with congestive heart failure, with water swelling up in your lungs and your uh, heart, and you suffocating to death. So the soldier does the final deed in piercing Jesus' heart to guarantee that he was dead. Every bit of the eyewitness testimony of the disciples and even outside sources, points to the real, terrible death of Jesus Christ. This lie is also ridiculous because it ignores the the faithful witness of the apostles who were willing to suffer tortures and executions of their own for the truth. Why would anyone be willing to die for a lie? I don't know of anyone who has ever propagated something that they knew to be false to the point that they were executed for it. If James, the apostle, knew that Jesus had simply swooned and later recovered, why would he faithfully witness to Jesus' death and resurrection and be thrown from the roof of the temple for it? If Jesus had faked his death, why would Nathaniel stand by his testimony under the threat of being skinned alive. All of the apostles faced similar fates. John was boiled in hot tar. Uh, Matthew went and was was speared to death. All of the uh, apostles suffered horrible fates and none recanted or confessed some grand conspiracy, but were faithful to the end of their witness of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So now that we've seen the evidence of the cross, consider the cross of Jesus Christ is essential. And to see that, look with me at Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, and the uh, trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So according to Paul, There are two benefits that we have through the cross of Christ, through his crucifixion, death, and burial. First, 
In verses 13 and 14, Paul says that through the cross, we have been forgiven of our sins. Praise God. Amen. We've been forgiven of our sins. He says that Jesus canceled the record of our debt. Now, you need to understand today that every last person in this world has a debt that they cannot pay. You might have a really good balance sheet at work. You might be, be uh, cash positive in your, uh, in your savings account. You might not have a single debt, whether credit card or, or car payment or house payment or whatever it may be. But regardless of where you stand financially in this world, regardless of where you stand socially in this world, you have a debt that you cannot pay. You have the debt of sin that you owe to God and you cannot pay it. As Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. And we all have earned our wages. We all deserve death because we all have a debt of sin that we cannot pay. We all deserve death and hell because of the wages we have earned through our sins. But praise God, Jesus died as a substitutionary sacrifice for us. And in so doing, He has canceled our debt. He has taken the debt of sin that we owe upon Himself on the cross of Calvary, and He has canceled what we owe to God, and we no longer stand before God as an indebted servant, but as a child who is ready to inherit the kingdom of God. That is what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. He has forgiven us our sins. Second, in verse 15, Paul says that Jesus disarmed and shamed the rulers and authorities by triumphing over them on the, on the cross. Now, when Paul says rulers and authorities, I think oftentimes we probably think that that means the Romans and the Jews. But that is not at all who Paul has in mind. You see, what Paul is thinking of is this great story behind the story of Scripture. From the very beginning, in Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve, evil spiritual forces, what Paul would call rulers and authorities, have ruled, have ruled over mankind. In fact, this is the great drama of Adam and Eve's deception in the garden. They submitted to the rule of Satan over the rule of God. And in doing so, they brought the whole of the world under the rule of Satan. The Lord tells Cain this very thing in Genesis chapter 4. He said, he tells Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to rule over you. You see, the pagan nations were ruled by wicked kings And standing behind those wicked kings were evil spirits that they worshipped as gods. So the Bible sees all of humanity as enslaved to sin and the devil. And the devil is often referred to as the ruler of this world. So this great drama of the story behind the story of these spiritual forces that rule over humanity and, and oppress and, uh, and, and, and uh, enforce this e- evil rule over all of the world, uh, it all comes to a head at the cross. 
It all, if you will, intersects at the cross of Calvary. Satan used every power at his disposal, from the religious leaders to the political rulers to the military authorities, to once and for all destroy the will of God by destroying his son. The Messiah would not rule if Satan had anything to do with it. The Savior would not deliver his people if the devil had a say. So through his human palms, he had the Son of God beaten, mocked, shamed, tortured, and killed. And yet, he did it all walking right into the trap of God's plan. There's a beautiful poetry, a beautiful story behind the story in everything that happens in the crucifixion of Jesus. Think about this. The priests thought that they were handing over a blasphemer. But they were offering up a lamb of God to be slain for the sins of the world. In fact, the high priest even says so much going on to say that it is necessary that one man should die than rather the whole nation should die. And John says that he was prophesying about what Jesus' death actually meant. The scholars, like the Pharisees, thought that they were putting down a pretender to the throne of David. But then Pilate writes an inscription over Jesus' throne, uh, over Jesus' uh, cross, and it says, Jesus uh, of Nazareth what? King of the Jews. And the, the Jews get all upset and they say, you need to take that down or you need to change it to say, he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, I, what I have written, I have written. Now, why did the Jews get so upset that Pilate would write king of the Jews? Because Pilate is the legal authority to recognize the authority of another. And so when Pilate wrote king of the Jews, he was a a legal authority declaring another legal authority. He recognized in his writing the very fact that Jesus was king of of, of the Jews, walking right into the trap that God had set for Satan. The Roman authorities thought that they could put to death another criminal, even sealing his grave and putting a guard in front of his tomb. But on the third day, the tomb was empty and the guards were speechless. All of the authorities of earth and heaven did their work. And even in that, they could not defeat the Son of God. They did exactly what God had purposed for them to do all along to redeem us from our sins, to give us forgiveness and substitution for our sins, and to set us free from the bondage of sin and Satan. So friend, Jesus was crucified, he died, and he was buried so that you might be forgiven and set free from the bondage of sin and Satan. The only way to escape the judgment of God is that you would turn to faith in Christ, that you would rest in the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has given for your sins. So won't you turn in faith and repentance today? Brothers and sisters, we are set free from sin and Satan through Jesus Christ. And it is because of that that we are able to live in righteousness through him. He has set us free so that we are no longer bound by sin, 
so that we can live for him. This morning, we have a beautiful picture of that very sacrifice set before us. It's the picture that Jesus himself gave to his disciples, that bread should represent his life-giving body that he gave for us, and that the cup of uh, the fruit of the vine should represent the covenant that he made with his people through his blood. And so today we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to be reminded of the crucifixion, death, and burial of Christ so that we might worship and serve Him and live in the sacrifice that He has given for us. And so at this time, I'd invite the deacons to come forward and help in administering the supper.